I am completely open to having those discussions at the appropriate time. Is now the appropriate time, Mr. Secretary? Yes, I think it is. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Appropriate time was years ago, true. Right. Today will suffice. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV, in Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We are also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour, Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. You can run, but you can't hide. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, uh, too soon. Is it too soon? As Rick Perry, you heard in the opening there, our energy secretary, uh, former governor of Texas, too soon to talk about the effect of climate change on these two massive and deadly storms. Harvey and Irma, which are uh, likely to be uh, combined uh, easily, uh, Desi Doyen, the most expensive natural disasters in history. Oh, yeah. In fact, Harvey point. was <laughs> Harvey was already well on its way to becoming the more, most By expensive. By itself, natural, yeah. yeah. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, that's what uh, Donald Trump's EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, his energy secretary, Rick Perry, both say it's uh, too soon. We can't talk about the effects of climate change on all of this. It's all somewhat uh, ironic, I suppose, that the governor of Florida, Rick Scott, had barred state officials uh, for years from using phrases like climate change and global warming and sea level rise. Uh, Now, tragically ironic, I suppose. So the latest on Irma and my guest on all of this, an actual climate scientist, Dr. Michael Mann, he will join me shortly with a few opinions on all of this, I suspect. Uh, But let's start with um, a bit of encouraging news today, a little less dark for the moment anyway, Uh, less dark for Democrats, I should say. Democrats won a pair of state legislative seats in special elections on Tuesday night in districts that President Trump carried by very comfortable margins last fall. These uh, two elections are the latest in a string of down-ballot wins that the Democrats have pulled off in the Trump era. Democrats won an Oklahoma State House seat where Trump won by an 11-point margin last fall. Uh, they won on Tuesday night 60 to 40 percent 
in Oklahoma. And uh, they also picked up, Democrats did, another uh, seat in uh, a, a state house seat in New Hampshire as well. There by a 12-point margin in a district that Trump had won 56 to 39 um, percent of the vote. So these are swings. This is, uh, let's see, 31 points and 28-point swings towards Democrats, respectively, in Oklahoma and New Hampshire in these two state house seats since last fall. 31-point swing, 28-point swings. Those are pretty huge uh, yeah. in just these few short months. As the Oklahoma news, uh, Oklahoman newspaper uh, reports, Democrat J- Jacob Rosencrantz, uh, his win in Oklahoma is the third Democratic pickup of a Republican-held state legislative seat already in the state of Oklahoma this year. Ryan Grimm of The Intercept observes that in November, Trump won this Oklahoma state legislative district by 11 points. And Rosencrantz, the Democratic candidate at that time as well, Rosencrantz had lost his election by 20 points uh, last November. But Tuesday night, Rosencrantz the very same guy ran again for the very same seat in this special election. He upset his opponent by 20 points. That's a 40-point swing from last November to this week. It's the third special election the Democrats have flipped in Oklahoma since November, Grimm notes. And in a uh, fourth uh, back in May, they lost a race by just two, two points in a district that Trump had carried by 50 points. So even though they didn't pick up that seat in May, uh, that's not a typo. A 48-point swing in May from November to May of this year. Those wins bring the total number of Democratic pickups in the Trump era so far to six seats overall. As Daily Coast points out, in more than two-thirds of the 36 state legislative special elections held this year, Democrats have overperformed Hillary Clinton's numbers in those districts. That trend has carried over to congressional special elections as well for the uh, for the U.S. House, where Democrats have consistently outperformed Clinton's percentages in those House special elections this year, though in that case in Congress they have failed to win a race yet. Georgia's 6th district race was the only one where Democrats had spent heavily to win. They came up short there, though, given the fact that Georgia's race in that 6th district was run on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen systems and that the Democrat beat the Republican on the absentee paper ballots in that same race, almost two to one. Who actually knows uh, what happened in the uh, 6th uh, district in Georgia back in June? But in any event, CNN's Chris Saliza points out that while Dems have flipped six Republican seats so far this year in these uh, legislative uh, state uh, special elections, he says it's worth noting Republicans have yet to flip a Democratic-controlled seat so far this year. Hmm. In related news uh, that may not seem to be related uh, at at first, but, uh, but it is, wait for it, Former President Jimmy Carter offered a damning indictment of U.S. foreign policy and domestic affairs on Tuesday, saying that money in politics makes the nation more like an oligarchy than a democracy. That's coming from a uh, a former president of the United States saying that the U.S. looks more like an oligarchy than a democracy. And 
it's hard to disagree. He cast President Donald Trump as a disappointment on the world stage. Carter's criticism uh, at his annual presentation uh, to backers of his Carter Center in Atlanta went beyond Trump. Uh, But though he was particularly critical of the nation's direction under the Republican president's leadership, according to the Associated Press, the 39th president, a Democrat, offered uh, this advice to the 45th president, quote, keep the peace, promote human rights and tell the truth. Sound advice from Jimmy Carter. Lofty goals. I don't know that they're going to be met. Uh, he's uh, 92 years old right now. He did not mention uh, explicitly Trump's threatening language over the summer with North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un. But the former president said the U.S. should engage directly with the insular leader and discuss a peace treaty to replace. And this is important. People say, you know, what 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 do we do about uh North Korea, what is it that they want? Well, if you talk to people who know uh, the region, know what they want, they want a peace treaty to replace the ceasefire, the secession of uh, arms that took place that ended the Korean War back in 1953. Didn't really end it. It's just uh, paused it. Carter says, I would send my top person to Pyongyang immediately if I didn't go myself. He said uh, he's been there three times. Even as successive U.S. administrations have refused to deal with the regime, the North Koreans, Carter said, want a treaty that guarantees the U.S. will not attack unless North Korea attacks the U.S. or an ally, particularly South Korea. He says, until we talk to them, treat them with respect as human beings, which they are, I don't think we're going to make any progress, said Jimmy Carter. And, uh, you know... (laughs) That sounds like a reasonable idea to me. Do they want a treaty that says we will not attack you unless you attack either us, the U.S., or or an ally uh, like South, uh, South Korea first? Is that what they want? If that's what they want, let's sign it. Because right now they have been spending years saying the U.S. is preparing an attack. And now they have a whole bunch of evidence uh, that our current president of the United States may really want to do that. So you want a peace treaty? Let's give them a peace treaty. In exchange, they can stop their uh, nuclear development program, whatever it takes. But let's start talking. In any event, um, the AP notes that uh, the former president, uh, Carter, and his wife, uh, Rosalind, largely steer clear of partisan politics Uh, long having yielded any active role in the Democratic Party, but they maintain a high-profile advocacy through the Carter Center, which focuses on human rights, public health, and, yes, Democratic elections. On Tuesday, Carter defended the center's role in monitoring the August presidential elections in Kenya that the country's Supreme Court threw out. They discarded those results. The court has ordered a new election in Kenya, even after the uh, uh, Carter Center had monitored them. This was a team that was led by former Secretary of State John Kerry. Uh, They said days after the vote that the process of casting ballots was paper ballots was fair, but that the electronic tabulations were unreliable. Fancy that. Carter said on Tuesday that international monitors were not allowed to observe the counting process. 
So the voting was fine. The counting was not. Where have I heard that before? That, of course, is something we talk a lot about on this program. It's all about the counting process and assuring that the public can oversee that process. So I'm happy to see uh, Carter highlight that issue there. Uh, so far, I have to say, in my, as I've said many times, in my 15 years or so now on this beat, the only way that I've discovered for the public to be able to oversee the counting process is for hand-marked paper ballots to be publicly counted at each precinct by hand with results posted there before ballots are moved anywhere. If you look at other countries where they have paper ballots and things go south, it's in that counting process. Um, so the voters are doing fine, but the counting remains a different issue. And even though the voters are doing fine, Donald Trump's pretend election integrity commission, headed up by the GOP wunderkind voter fraud fraudster and Kansas Secretary of State uh, Chris Kobach, is seemingly obsessed with finding somehow a massive voter fraud conspiracy going on so that they can use that to further restrict the right to vote. Uh, that fake election integrity commission headed up by Kobach held their second public meeting uh, this one in New Hampshire this week on Tuesday. And from the coverage, it did not go well for Kobach. Last week, he had claimed we talked about it in detail. Uh, he had claimed there was new evidence that was proof, his word, proof that uh, so-called voter fraud by illegal voters had flipped the U.S. Senate presidential uh, U.S. Senate and presidential election contest last November to the Democrats in uh, in New Hampshire. Since uh, that new data, he claims it's new, it's been around for several months, but he claims that data showed that about 5,000 voters who use same-day registration in New Hampshire registered on the same day that they voted, that they used out-of-state ID to register, but that they did not end up getting a state driver's license or register a car in New Hampshire thereafter. That, he said, was was proof that uh, these were uh, voters who were illegally crossing the state border to vote in New Hampshire. We debunked that nonsense in some detail on uh, one of our broadcasts last week. Uh, in short, almost all of those same day registrations uh, appear to be in college towns where it's perfectly legal to vote, to register and vote where you go to, uh, to go to school, even if you don't get a driver's license in that state. Nonetheless, Kobach wrote in a paid Breitbart column, that right wing website, uh, Breitbart, that this data proved voter fraud won the election in New Hampshire for Hillary Clinton. Apparently, he didn't notice uh, that there is New Hampshire law distinguishes between residents who, if they have out of state licenses, they must get a new one in 60 days. The difference between residents and those who are merely domiciled there. They don't intend to remain as residents, but they're allowed to vote there. For example, uh, they're going to college there. And the Supreme Court has long ago determined that, yes, you can vote where you go to school. Well, Kobach was blasted for this egregious error uh, in that column uh, and these charges regarding New Hampshire voting, uh, claiming that last year's presidential election was stolen. He was blasted for this in New Hampshire at this meeting of the president's so-called Election Integrity Commission. To his face? To his face. Awesome. 
Yeah, it wasn't smart that he made those claims just before going to New Hampshire. Uh, things did not go well at this meeting. Uh, Tierney Sneed reports Chris Kobach may have thought he had a slam dunk case when he showed up in New Hampshire on Tuesday to claim mass voter fraud. Instead, he found himself getting dunked on by both members of the Voter Fraud Commission, members of the uh, his own commission that he's leading. And the witnesses who testified at the meeting who bashed him for screwing up the basic facts of New Hampshire's election law and accused him of jumping to conclusions. Jessica Huseman, uh, a ProPublica, was live tweeting the uh, exchanges as they took place at the commission's panel on Tuesday. She uh, some of, from some of her tweets here, she said Kobach is presently addressing his column. He said it's a, quote, complex legal issue to be able to fit into an 800-word column. He said that uh, the question is, if we have evidence that they are likely not residents, then we need to know if they are not domiciled or something like that. Uh, He did not seem to understand the difference between resident and domicile. He says, until further research is done, we will never know the answer regarding this particular question of whether New Hampshire's vote was legit. But he didn't say that in his column. In his column, he said that this was proof of fraud, that these two uh, elections in New Hampshire was stolen. Much of what he is saying, uh, Huseman notes, uh, doesn't really apply to the claims that he was making in his article that people needed to have in-state driver's licenses. They don't. But he said in that column, now there is proof. Well, there wasn't. Secretary of State Bill Gardner was very clear, apparently, in response to this. He said the problem that has occurred is because of what you wrote. And that question of whether our elections, as we have recorded it, is real and valid, and it is real and valid. That, according to New Hampshire Secretary of State Bill Gardner, who is on the commission, he got applause from the meeting's audience when he said that. He said, I hope we all learn from this. It's not right to come to conclusions based on these numbers, said Gardner's, said Gardner. Those facts don't create proof. And again, Kobach's column contained the word, now there's proof. Uh, and he's heading up this commission with the vice president of the United, of the United States, uh, Mike Pence. Just incredible. In, in, in his own commission meeting today, two commission commissioners, uh, Huseman says in her tweet yesterday, uh, two commissioners and a panelist have both told Kobach he was wrong. He has yet to admit that he was wrong. Maine's Democratic Secretary of State Matt Dunlop, also a member of Kobach's commission, blasted Kobach. He said making this equation that somehow people not updating their driver's licenses is an indicator of voter fraud would be almost as absurd as saying that if you have cash in your wallet, that that's proof that you robbed a bank. (laughs) Dunlop said, I think that's a reckless statement to make. Well, Republicans are pretty quick. Uh, to use even the most sketchy bits of evidence that they can possibly discover to claim that our democracy has fallen victim to massive voter fraud conspiracies and that we must take radical steps to prevent it, even if it means millions of our fellow Americans lose their right to vote. But when it comes to the the climate, decades of peer-reviewed evidence, hundreds of thousands of papers by tens of thousands of scientists, that... That doesn't seem to do the trick for some reason. That evidence is 
just completely ignored, and now it's costing the U.S. and the planet bigly. The latest news on the devastating fallout from Hurricane Irma in Florida and Dr. Michael Mann, creator of the infamous and for some reason controversial hockey stick graph, plotting the science showing the increased heat in our atmosphere and how it almost plots identically to the release into our atmosphere of greenhouse gases thanks to the man-made burning of fossil fuel. All of that and more is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Don't know why There's no sun up in the sky Stormy weather Well, my next guest coming up momentarily, Dr. Michael Mann may know the answer to to that question. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Parts of Florida are beginning to inch back toward normal with workers restoring power, clearing roads, replenishing gas supplies, even as teams scour the state's southernmost islands and authorities warned of mass devastation there, according to AP. Residents are drifting back from shelters and faraway havens to see Hurricane Irma's destruction. Flooded streets remain and the count of damaged and totaled homes has been ticking upward. Federal Emergency Management Agency Administrator Brock Long said preliminary estimates suggested that some 25 percent of the homes in the Keys, as one out of four, were destroyed and 65 percent of those still standing sustained major damage. Florida authorities are disputing that 25 percent number somewhat as contact with the Keys are improving and more on-the-ground inspections are replacing those taken by air. Search and rescue teams made their way into the more distant reaches of the Keys. An aircraft carrier has been positioned off of Key West to help. Officials said it was not known how many people stayed behind in the Keys. The number of people with electricity, however, in the steaming late summer heat while dropping, has only dropped to about 9.5 million without power now, just under half of Florida's population. Utility officials warned it could take 10 days or more for power to be fully restored. About 110,000 people remain in shelters across the state as of Tuesday. Florida Rick, uh, Governor Rick Scott vowed, we are going to get this state rebuilt. But for the moment, after more than a two-hour wait, 
One man near the front of a line at a recently reopened grocery store in hard-hit Naples said that the days without electricity and other basics are beginning to wear on people already. He says the order of the day is to keep people calm. Drinking water and power were still cut off in much of the Keys. All three of the island's hospitals were closed and the uh, supply of gasoline is extremely limited. Eight patients at a sweltering Hollywood, Florida nursing home died in Hurricane's, uh, Hurricane Irma's aftermath, according to authorities today, as people confronted a multitude of new hazards in the storm's wake, including that oppressive heat, brush-clearing accidents, lethal fumes from generators. Three patients were found dead at the nursing home early on Wednesday. Five more have died at the hospital after a total of more than 100 were evacuated, many of them on stretchers or in wheelchairs, according to authorities. The air conditioning was out, but Hollywood Police Chief Tom Sanchez said it remained under investigation whether power was entirely cut. He didn't answer questions regarding whether a generator was running inside the place. Also in the Miami area, a Coral Gables apartment building was evacuated after authorities determined a lack of power made it unsafe for elderly tenants. In addition, at least five people have died and more than a dozen were treated after breathing carbon monoxide fumes from generators in the Orlando, Miami and Daytona Beach areas. In addition to the nursing home deaths, at least 13 people in Florida have died under Irma-related circumstances, many of them well after the storm passed. Elsewhere, Irma has been blamed for four deaths in South Carolina, two in Georgia. At least 37 were killed in the Caribbean. Outside a grocery store allowing limited sales in Marathon Key, Florida, one woman said she had yet to see any state or federal officials or utility companies working on the ground there yet. Her home had no electricity or running water. President Donald Trump's Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert said the federal government is working to help Florida, Key, uh, Florida Keys residents secure shelter through rental assistance, hotels, or pre-manufactured housing. Trump plans to visit Florida on Thursday. For many of Irma's victims, the days ahead are likely to be very soggy, very sweaty, very dark, and very discouraging. One of the biggest worries continues to be the fate of Florida's many senior citizens. The longtime retirement destination has the highest proportion of people 65 years of age or older of any state, one in five of its 20 million residents. Uh, on Tuesday, Florida's Democratic U.S. Senator Bill Nelson told Politico that Republican members of Congress and Florida Governor Rick Scott are denying reality by refusing to acknowledge the role that climate change has played in these two recent hurricanes that have rocked U.S. coastal communities over the past month. It's denying reality, Nelson said. You can call it politics or whatever, but the earth is getting hotter. This storm is another reminder of what we've got to deal with in the future. As a former astronaut, Nelson said the climate change and the greenhouse effect have warmed the waters and caused sea levels around Florida to rise in recent decades, which has helped fuel the size of Hurricane Irma, he said, saying that is not a political issue. It's certainly going to be an important issue, and if certain people, such as the one you mentioned, is my opponent, uh, he said in an interview with Politico, there is a significant contrast in what we believe he was referring to Florida Governor Rick Scott, 
who is uh, likely to be Nelson's opponent in the 2018 Senate race. And he has questioned climate science in the past. Questioning climate science is a nice way to put it. He's actually barred Florida officials from using that phrase in various contexts, climate science at all. Senator Nelson said he thinks Republicans should explain why they think that 99.5 percent of scientists are wrong about climate change. It's ironic, isn't it, said Nelson, questioning why politicians are so quick to believe government scientists when they make predictions about when hurricanes are coming, but not on climate change predictions. They accept the hurricane information, he said, but they deny the climate information. But never mind what we're going to have to deal with in the future, as Nelson says. Author and founder of 350.org, Bill McKibben, writing at The Guardian this week, argues, stop talking right now about the threat of climate change. It's here. It's happening, he says. Not that you would necessarily know that from watching or reading the corporate media. Many major outlets uh, throughout all of the coverage of both the record Hurricanes Harvey and Houston and the record Hurricane Irma this past week barely and in some cases not at all mentioned the influence of climate change on these two storms. But not us here on the broadcast and the Green News Report. We've been covering it for years. Yep. And we will continue to right after this break with Dr. Michael E. Mann from Penn State University. Yes, an actual climate scientist. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Some Republicans, including a number in the Trump administration, including the EPA chief Scott Pruitt and Energy Secretary Rick Perry, have gone so far as to charge that we should not talk at all right now about climate change. Here's Rick Perry after Harvey and before Irma. We can line up scientists on both sides of this. Uh, this is not the time to be having that conversation if you want to know the truth of the matter. Uh, you know, I, I know everybody wants to run to uh, the, uh, the climate change debate, uh, but that is very secondary uh, sure. at, at this particular time. And... Uh, I am completely open to having those discussions at the appropriate time. Yeah, just not now. Uh, scientists, really, on both sides of this, now is not the appropriate time to talk about it. If not now, when? Joining us now to answer those questions and much more is Dr. Michael E. Mann. He's the Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth Systems Science Center at Pennsylvania State University. He's also the author of more than 160 peer-reviewed and edited publications, as well as the books The Hockey Stick and The Climate Wars, Dire Predictions, Understanding Climate Change, and his newest book with political cartoonist Tom Tolles, The Madhouse Effect. 
how climate change denial is threatening our planet, destroying our politics, and driving us crazy. That is now a very short drive. Dr. Michael Mann, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Uh, thanks very much. It's good to be with you. Good to have you back, Professor. I want to talk a bit about Perry's comments and others like him, but before those politics, let's just start with the facts of what we know and don't. Since uh, that study by publiccitizen.org, finding such poor coverage from so many outlets, uh, made me realize that, yes, we need to keep discussing this and discussing it now. But uh, anyway, more on that in a moment. From a simple meteorological perspective, what, if anything, made each of these two storms, uh, Harvey and Irma, unique or historically unusual? In a word, warmth. Warmth. Um, warm oceans uh, means more moisture in the atmosphere, moisture that's available uh, for record flooding rainfall like we saw in Harvey. Mm -hmm. It also means greater intensification of these storms. Um, and indeed, we saw the most intense hurricane ever in the open Atlantic, Irma, at 185 miles per hour. Uh, one thing we know um, from a theoretical standpoint is as you warm the ocean, there's more energy available to strengthen these storms and they can potentially reach higher levels of intensity. And we see that in the observations. First of all, look, at the, in the, over the last three years, when global ocean temperatures have been at their warmest, we have seen the, warmest, the, the strongest hurricane ever um, globally, mm -hmm. which was uh, Patricia in the Pacific um, uh, a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. We have seen obviously the strongest storm in the northern hemisphere. We've also seen the strongest storm in the southern hemisphere, Winston, which struck Fiji um, and threatened Australia. And now we've seen the strongest storm ever, not just in the Pacific, but in the Atlantic, in the open Atlantic, in the form of Irma. So I have uh, colleagues who would like to um, believe that that's simply a coincidence, but it's not. And if you look at the observations, uh, and there was an article uh, in uh, Nature uh, some years ago which demonstrated that if you look at the strongest storms, they're getting stronger. And at a rate of about 10 miles per hour in peak wind speed for each degree Fahrenheit warming. And we've warmed the global oceans more than a Fahrenheit, uh, one degree Fahrenheit. Mm -hmm. um, that amounts to roughly 7% of an increase in wind speeds. Now, here's the thing. The damage done by a hurricane, the destructive potential, actually goes as the wind speed raised to the third power. Mm -hmm. So that 7% increase in wind speed means roughly 20% increase in destructive potential. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not coincidental that we're noticing that. Um, that is not a, a subtle uh, climate signal. That's, that's a, a very tangible um, impact that um, that warming is having on the destructive potential of these storms. And as I like to say, and as you alluded to earlier, the impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. Uh, we are seeing them play out in, in real time. Um, and uh, there's no greater example than what we've seen happen over the past several weeks, not just with these unprecedented hurricanes, but with the western U.S. experiencing record heat and record wildfire, um, the impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. I know you wrote about uh, about some of this a few days ago with uh, Thomas Peterson and Joy Hassall in uh, Scientific American and an, headline, and an article headlined, What We Know About the Climate Change Hurricane Connection. Yeah. The field of attribution science, and, and help me if I'm describing this uh, incorrectly, but the process of determining 
what, if any, effect climate change has on any particular extreme weather-related event. That field has has grown considerably, as I understand it, in recent years. How long does it take to sort of conclusively determine the climate change fingerprint on of uh, events like Harvey and Irma at this point? Yeah, so in our piece, we explain there are really two ways to approach that question, and one is just to talk about the fundamental processes, mm-hmm. as we already have. We know that warming increases the amount of moisture and the amount of rainfall. We know that warming increases the potential intensity of these storms. We don't have to do an attribution study uh, to say that. And so just uh, as uh, in the case of a baseball player who's, taking steroids and hits more home runs uh, during that season, we know that a bunch of those home runs were due to the steroids. Mm. And as uh, Tom Tolles uh, and I say in one, in one of the cartoons in the Madhouse Effect, to say, oh, but you can never attribute any one storm to the climate change, or you could never attribute any one particular of those home runs to climate change is a loophole that you could lose a planet through. Mm. Um, it is a loophole because, obviously, in a statistical sense, we are seeing more of these extreme events because of climate change. And it's the same sort of attribution um, that uh, led to uh, a major settlement by the tobacco industry um, when there was a clear demonstrated statistical linkage between smoking cigarettes and people dying of lung cancer. And whether or not you could prove that any one person might or might not have died anyway is irrelevant because you know that you've loaded the dice Mm -hmm. towards those uh, things happening more often. Now, when people say, and you still hear this response, even by some of my scientist colleagues when they're asked, you know, what role did climate change play in this event? Um, And they'll say, well, you know, you can never attribute any one event uh, to climate change. It's almost like a mantra. It's like uh, they they, they teach it in bad climate communication (laughs) 101. Um, Right. And... And it's just wrong now. Um, the the uh, attribution science has, has reached the point where we can do a sort of post-mortem on a storm of this sort, and we can do parallel simulations with climate models, uh, both with and without the added impact of, of humans on the climate, uh, increased greenhouse gas concentrations. And you can see, you know, do, did climate change make this event uh, significantly more likely to happen? Uh, it's just as... That approach was used to basically convict the tobacco industry um, for, you know, the death of, mm-hmm. of, of, of millions of people from smoking cigarettes. Um, we can say in a statistical sense that this event is linked to climate change in the sense that it was made several times more likely to happen by climate change. It's the same sort of statistical linkage that is used you know, in, in the mm-hmm. context of, um, again, the linkages, the metal, medical impacts of uh, pollutants um, and um, uh, you know, tobacco products. Yeah, nobody says, uh, can we blame any one particular cigarette? And yet we're, ho- we're trying to hold <laughs> climate change to that standard, right. uh, or at least some in our media are, are trying to. And, and, you know, and you sort of, uh, it gets to the other part of this, why? <laughs> Uh, well, yeah, and we well, we will get to that in a second. Well, this sort of uh, helps us get there. Your your, your explanations, I want to say, uh, Doctor Mann, have been at Facebook and elsewhere very early after Harvey uh, and then Irma have been very helpful to many of us in the media on this. Thank so you. I'll I will try not to torture you here since you've written so much about this. Uh, but but I will. So I will give you just one of these uh, quickly. Uh, yeah. Charlie Kirk. 
A right winger at some outfit called Turning Point USA tweeted, Florida has had 119 hurricanes since 1850, yet this this last one is due to man-made climate change. Obviously, he was being uh, sarcastic there, uh, you know, poking at people like you. Your response to Charlie when uh, they claim that people like you are saying hurricanes, this hurricane or that hurricane was caused by climate change. Yeah, so it's a straw man, right? What they're doing is they're putting words in the mouth of scientists because they can't actually um, refute the connections that we are talking about. So we, they pretend that we said something that we didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, they pretend that we made a statement that, you know, uh, you know th- this is sort of the, the, the typical straw man. The, these scientists are blaming um, Harvey on climate change. They're saying that Harvey wouldn't have happened without climate change. Nobody is saying that. I haven't heard anybody say that. <laughs> and no matter how careful we are in explaining that what we're talking about is how climate change is exacerbating um, the, the impacts of these storms, mm-hmm. no matter how careful we are. And, you know, you referred to several commentaries we've written where we have been very careful. and mm-hmm. We've been very nuanced about how we talk about the connections, but it doesn't matter. Um, it's it, it, what they're trying to do, uh, of course, is sort of um, muddy the waters, poison the well. Um, they, the critics, you know, fossil fuel funded uh, front groups and the right-wing shock jocks that basically um, uh, work as their facilitators um, understand that these sorts of events really have the potential to hit home with people. When people understand how much damage climate change um, is doing now, um, then, you know, that's that's a real threat to the forces of denial and delay. Um, and so they go after it. And in the very much the same way, right, when uh, you know, I'd like to draw the parallels between Superstorm Sandy and Sandy Hook, mm-hmm. okay? In the case of Sandy Hook, the NRA didn't want us talking about um, gun control in the wake of that terrible disaster where, you know, 20-something school children were killed. Um, uh, you know, the mantra is, this isn't the right time to talk about it. Uh, when Superstorm Sandy wreaked havoc on New York City and the Jersey Coast, Again, this isn't the time to talk about it. We heard that echoed in Scott Pruitt's uh, comments and, and, and Perry's comments mm-hmm. as well. This is a mantra. Um, it's what I call sort of the doctrine of Sandy silence, mm-hmm. um, whether it's Superstorm Sandy or Sandy Hook. Uh, the, the, the forces um, uh, of inaction and delay don't want us to be able to, t- to, to use a teaching moment uh, like this um, and it's sort of like, you know, a drunk driver uh, crashing into a, you know, telephone pole. Um, and then, you know, when, when the cops apprehend him, it's like, this is not the right time to be talking about my drunk driving. <laughs> uh, that, that's, this Good. is actually what Seth Meyers said the other day on his show. He said it better than, than I can uh, say it. Uh, it. It was a lot funnier than it going to be coming from me but it's you know it makes the point right this is ridiculous this is absurd and in any other uh, you know under any other circumstances um we would dismiss this sort of uh you know reasoning out of hand and and yet you know the media as you note have largely been cowed into silence by by that sort of sort of um you know it's it's the working of the refs the, uh, the, um, the forces of delay and denial are working the refs, 
and the refs are, are responding. Um, I, the the media is responding by not by being silent. Uh, yeah, they're responding. They're they're doing a good job of it. They don't even need yeah. to work the refs anymore. The refs seem to work themselves. I got a few more questions along those lines, but I want to yeah. uh, get. Uh, I know you've been on the road, so I don't know if you've been able to follow how closely you you've been able to follow uh, Hurricane Jose. After yeah. we've had this one-two punch, now we've got Hurricane Jose sort of quietly spinning around out in the Atlantic, uh, posing a potential threat to the middle Atlantic uh, seaboard or yep. uh, New England in the days ahead. There have been differing outlooks between some of the U.S. and European models for that storm. Um, one even set from the Met office, uh, a number of uh, models, forecasts, found that Jose could loop around and hit Florida again. Others said, you know, could hit New, New York, New Jersey. Others say it might just spin away to the east altogether. First, what do we know about that storm right now? And why are the European models, they seem to be more correct than the yeah. U.S. models, at least for Irma. Is, is that true? And what do you chalk it up to? Yeah, so I think you summarized the situation quite well. And we don't know exactly what's going to happen to Jose at this point because the steering winds are pretty weak. And when the steering winds are weak, then you know, like a top that's just sort of wobbling around and not necessarily, you know, you haven't pushed it in any particular direction. So it's just sort of wobbling around on its own. Um, and it's very difficult to tell, you know, where the top will go and when it'll fall over. Mm -hmm. um, that's sort of like um, what we're talking about with the landfall of these storms. And we saw that with Harvey. Um, we've seen you know, a number of storms. That was the problem with, uh, well, Superstorm Sandy, mm -hmm. but also Irene. Um, uh, a, a lot of the, the worst impacts come from storms that basically remain in place, and, and, the, and they don't move out uh, into the Atlantic Ocean, um, as, as they typically do, as we typically expect, because of the, the westerly prevailing winds that tend to take these storms out to the ocean. And they're one of sort of the areas right now at, at the forefront uh, of climate science is understanding if climate change may indeed be changing the behavior of the jet stream so that you get more of these stalled weather systems mm -hmm. in, in the summer. And there's some evidence to that effect. Um, we can't implicate that um, for the behavior of you know, the, these particular storms. It, it really is a tenuous connection. But there's some suggestion that climate change may actually be favoring that. Does um, that play into the difference between the models, the European models uh, that showed one thing for Irma, for example, and another thing uh, uh, under the U.S. Uh, forecast models? Well, no. To me, that highlights uh, a different problem, which is um, the lack of commitment uh, now in, in this country, especially under the, the current administration, uh, um, under the Trump administration, the lack of commitment to making sure that the U.S. leads the world when it comes to um, th this area of science. We're falling behind, and so, you know, ironically, we have to talk to the Europeans. We have to look very closely at their model to figure out what's going to happen to the storms that are threatening the U.S. Their um, models are better than ours, are they? Their models are better than ours. They put more um, uh, resources. Their government uh, has put more resources into developing state-of-the-art models um, here in the U.S., uh, as you know, Trump wants to cut funding for the major science, um, uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the major scientific uh, uh, institutions um, and uh, funding agencies. And so it's a tale of, of two nations, one that's moving in the direction of incentivizing science and, and funding it and supporting it, and one, us, 
that's moving now in the wrong direction, in the opposite direction of defunding critical mm-hmm. science. We had uh, disaster historian Scott Knowles on the show the other day, uh, yeah. and, and I asked him if there was any question within his community of uh, disaster and, and climate research and infrastructure experts, etc., if there was any doubt that climate change was having an increased effect on the type and intensity of these storms. He described climate change as settled science, but he noted that there were a few dissenters in the community and that they seemed to be uh, largely among the broadcast meteorologists. Now, uh, Mike, uh, you teach uh, meteorology, I believe, so uh, I, I think you're going to have to uh, explain this failure here by these meteorologists. What, what, what do you chalk that up to? How can you explain that, that you know, we see so many sort of denier meteorologists uh, yeah. in the broadcast world? There are a couple different things going on. Um, one of them uh, has to do with the fact that if you're sort of focused on the trees it's sometimes hard to see the forest Uh, if you're focused on the very large day-to-day fluctuations in the weather if that's your job is to track those um, and to study those uh, fluctuations then it can be difficult to see the larger picture the forest which is um, how uh, those weather patterns are changing over time Uh, and so some of that is i think is just you can chalk it up to the fact that they're focused on sort of the the, the very high-frequency part of uh, how our environment is changing and not looking at the longer-term uh, signals, which are sometimes more subtle, although, as I you know, uh, am uh, quick to point out these days, the impacts of climate change no, lo- no longer really are that subtle. Uh, we can see them in extreme day-to-day weather events. Uh, the other part of it is historical, and it has to do with the fact that there were a number of contrarians um, who trained generations mm. of broadcast meteorologists, and that, that's true here uh, of our program, Penn State. Uh, in fact, uh, um, uh, I'm not sure if the statistic is up to date, but, uh, but um, uh, some years ago it was the case that roughly 25% of all broadcast meteorologists came through our program at Penn State University, mm. the largest uh, program when it, came to the, uh, when it comes to the training of broadcast meteorologists. Um, now there are a larger number of institutions that have programs in that area. So it, the, the fraction that comes through uh, our institution isn't quite as large. But that means a lot of meteorologists um, were trained by a small number of uh, professors um, and instructors, some of whom were climate change contrarians. Mm. Um, and, and that is a problem that is generational in nature, and we're seeing it shift dramatically as a newer generation of scientists who have been trained uh, in climate science um, in, in the programs that they've come through. There's um, uh, a younger generation now of meteorologists who are actually, I think, quite good, and they've, and they've been quite, um, quite clever, in fact, in the way that they've tried to work in the discussion of climate change into their weather broadcasts. But that's it's a changing of the guard. Mm. Um, there's still a lot of the, the old generation, um, you know, that um, that are that are still out there, and you know, it's 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 a problem that I think we're seeing uh, alleviated, um, you know, by efforts to again to make sure that um, uh, you know students who are trained in meteorology, uh, broadcast meteorology, do do learn something about climate as well. Um, so it's getting a lot better, and there are a number of uh, grants uh, that have been funded um, to try to 
uh, create a bridge between the communities, the meteorological communities, and, and the climate research community, um, again, to uh, ensure that um, broadcast meteorologists really do have more of that context uh, available to them. I, I, uh, I know you always, I, I, I know your time is short. Uh, you always are uh, shockingly optimistic when it comes to uh, some of these issues, believe it or not. Um, and, and also, speaking of uh, generational problems, let me ask you this one question before I let you go. Republican John McCain finally seems to be coming around uh, to a few, if not all, climate truths. Uh, this seems to be noteworthy, uh, yeah. at least somewhat. Uh, let, me, let me play a very short clip of McCain on CNN over the weekend as Irma was lashing Florida, and, uh, and then I'll get your reaction to it. Yeah. The president, the governor of Florida, etc., uh, act as if it's not real, even though the overwhelming science, scientific consensus is that it, it's real and it's man-made. Why? I don't know, because I can't divine their motives, but I know this, that uh, there is things happening with the climate in, in the world that is unprecedented. We have to understand that the climate may be changing, and we can take common sense measures which will not harm the American people and our economy. In fact, solar and other technologies make it cheaper for energy for many of the American people, including a state like mine where we have lots of sunshine. So uh, I think it's time for us to sit down again. Now, there are still some hedges there. That was John McCain on CNN yeah. over the weekend. Uh, yeah. may be change, climate may be changing. And, of course, McCain is, some, I think, 80 years old, struggling with cancer, unlikely to run for re-election again. But yeah. is there anything uh, positive uh, that we can or should take from his comments regarding Republicans' response to our climate crisis, Michael Mann? Yeah, I think so. And, and you know, that's the John McCain that, that so many of us have, uh, have admired. Um, and, and we hadn't seen so much of that John McCain in recent years. Um, and he seems to have returned. Um, I, have, uh, I will always have a soft spot in my heart for John McCain. He was one of the Republicans who actually came out and defended me and my colleagues when we were under attack by his fellow Republican, mm. Congressman Joe Barton of Texas, one of the largest recipients of fossil fuel money in the um, U.S. House of Representatives. Mm. And John McCain was... Uh, one uh, of, a, uh, of, a, of a small number of prominent Republicans who came out and said, you know, this is, um, he stopped just short of accusing his fellow Republican of modern-day McCarthyism. And John McCain has been very good on this issue. Uh, in fact, for a number of years, um, his office was funding a climate seminar series um, on Capitol Hill um, for staffers and, and politicians. Um, you know, behind the scenes, he's actually... Uh, really uh, done quite a, a lot of work to advance climate policy um, in the McCain-Lieberman bill. Um, of course, it, it didn't pass uh, back mm -hmm. in the early 2000s, um, but um, he co-sponsored you know, major climate legislation, tried to get it passed through the Senate. Um, so what happened, of course, is that, um, you know, as we know, he sort of... Uh, veered in a different direction um, when he uh, was the you know, the, the presidential candidate, mm -hmm. um, the Republican uh, candidate for president, uh, sort of to appease the so-called base, he sort of uh, veered in, in, in a direction that took him away from, uh, you know, his traditional support for climate action. Um, 
but I, I think that John McCain um, is back, um, and I think that he wants to see his legacy. I think he knows that you know he may not have too many years uh, left in, in service uh, to this country, and he wants to make sure he makes the most of it, is my interpretation. And he's going to work with other enlightened Republicans, uh, sort of in, in the closet <laughs> Republicans mm. uh, on climate. Um, you know, they don't necessarily uh, come out and and talk about it a whole lot, but, um, you know, Lindsey Graham, uh, there are a number of other Republicans um, who, you know, behind the scenes say that they would like to support climate legislation, but they're afraid that the, you know, the, 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 the conservative interests that have cowed their party into submission on this issue, the Koch brothers and fossil fuel interests, have made it very difficult for, for those Republicans who do come out and support of policy action. Some of them get primaried out of their congressional seats. That happened to Bob Inglis of South Carolina. Um, So, uh, you know, I think this is a good sign. I think that ironically, uh, you know, the era of Trump, as adverse as it might feel for um, when it comes to climate action, may ironically be creating a, a divide within the Republican Party that could end up uh, leading to a governing coalition for action on climate. Uh, I don't think we can rule that out. Um, And, of course, that would be ironic that we weren't able to get a climate bill through Congress under uh, President Obama, even when he had a Democratic Congress. Uh, It would be quite ironic if we were to see progress um, now under a Trump administration. Now, that may or may not happen, but um, increasingly there does seem to be support among Republicans who... uh, you know, the, the Trump phenomenon has created space for moderate Republicans to reassert themselves, and I think that's what we're seeing happen. As usual, the much more optimistic than I, uh, Michael Mann, <laughs> Distinguished Professor and Director of the Earth System Science Center at Pennsylvania State University, author of uh, many books, his newest of which is uh, The Madhouse Effect, How Climate Change Denial is Threatening Our Planet, Destroying Our Politics, and Driving Us Crazy with uh, cartoonist Tom Tolls. It has cartoons in it. Go buy it. Uh, you can also follow Michael on the Twitters at Michael E. Mann and on Facebook at Michael Mann Scientist. Mike, always great having you here. It won't be, uh, hopefully, it won't be as long uh, before we have you on again in the near future. Thank you, sir. Uh, thanks, Brad. Love to come back. Oh, you'll be sorry. All right, I got to get out myself here. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer, and, of course, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can also find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. I had someone I wanted to read blasting me today. I'll have to get to that in the future. <laughs> Convenient that I ran out of time, isn't it? Uh, Also, my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day over your public airwaves. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.